So how do we incorporate all this into clinical practice? Well, as one of the audience members wisely already pointed out on his comment, um, the distinction between taking a stable patient who's getting switched to a biosimilar, which Ray introduced the topic or the term non-medical switching, uh, versus whether or not somebody who's actively inflamed gets switched is an important one. And to the experienced clinician, you understand that if a biosimilar is similar in its efficacy and safety and has achieved extrapolation to the indication for IBD, then a patient who's not responding to the innovator or the originator therapy is not going to have any different response when you put them on a biosimilar. Now, the difference may be um, when you talk about within a class, which is a slightly different situation, and we'll get to that with our case when I talk to the panelists. So there are a number of clinical scenarios where biosimilars may come up in your practice, and we wanted to call out some of these because there are a couple of pitfalls here. The first, of course, is just the new start. I think most people are comfortable understanding that if you want to start a patient on a specific therapy, any therapy these days, um, if someone grants you the therapy within the class at all without giving you a hard time and, and the payer saying no, we're usually happy with that. Um, the same may be true when you're trying to prescribe an anti-TNF. Uh, the details may get into whether you prefer to start with uh, an IV anti-TNF therapy, like infliximab or one of the biosimilars, or an injectable anti-TNF, and there may be reasons to choose one over the other. The second scenario is the primary non... Oops, sorry about that. Let's go back. Is the primary non-responder, and Ray mentioned this already to you. The patient who you've loaded therapy or you've even escalated dosing in early phase and the patient has not responded or certainly not achieved a durable or sustainable remission. Um, is there a reason that a biosimilar may provide you additional benefit in that scenario? And the answer is clearly no. It should be the same drug, same pharmacokinetics otherwise. The stabilized responder is where all the studies have been done. And frankly, this is where people look for cost savings because the expense of biosimilars and biologics in general comes from their maintenance and their chronic utility. And this is where we talk about whether it's appropriate to allow a patient to be switched. It's interesting that uh, the majority of studies from Europe and Asia and now the experience in the U.S. is going from the innovator or brand infliximab that we're all familiar with to a biosimilar. But as you are, I'm sure, becoming familiar, people are getting started on the biosimilar, and there are going to be backs and forths depending on what happens. And it's not that far off, or perhaps you've already experienced it, where a payer will want to switch somebody based on whichever company came in with the cheapest price this month. And this is something we have to be aware of because the payers are doing what they need to do to try and save money, but they're not necessarily thinking carefully about how it may impact your patient or your patient's response. And that's where the last scenario, the loss of response patient, is where we can get into trouble. And I've pointed this out previously, and I want to point it out again. If you have a patient who's losing response to infliximab or a biosimilar to infliximab, and they have anti-drug antibodies, as Ray nicely mentioned, and they get put on a biosimilar or the innovator as the second drug after that, they will have the same reaction. Now, you know that, but you may have your team uh, calling to put them on an injectable uh, anti-TNF within the same class in which the antibodies are not expected to cross-react, and the payer may say, sorry, we can't give you adalimumab or certolizumab or golimumab, um, but we can give you infliximab DYYB instead. 
Very important that your team and you know that you have to push back hard and that's not acceptable because when the patient has anaphylaxis after they get the drug that they shouldn't have gotten, um, we are liable, the payer is not. So that's very important. So let me take my panelists through a couple of case scenarios and we'll see what we have. And I noticed some questions here that I'll get to as well. So Steve and Ray, this is a patient from my practice. He's a 23-year-old firefighter. He has an eight-year history of Crohn's disease of the ileum and colon and a perianal fistula. He's in stable remission on azathioprine and infliximab, um, five milligrams per kilogram every eight weeks, and he's been doing well for six months. You were just notified that his infusion center is switching everybody to a biosimilar to infliximab. What would you do in that scenario? Ray? So I, I think this is the scenario that you don't want. You don't want this process to be shortened into, you know, a, an eight-week window, um, and maybe you just were notified four weeks from his infusion. So what, what I would do is I would either through our nur- one of our nurses or myself inform the patient, try to explain what a biosimilar is, uh, summarize the data and safety very briefly, uh, reassure him that the switch should be fine, um, and hopefully I can reassure him and convince him. And hopefully he doesn't ask me to fight it because it would be difficult to fight. Um, but I think you have to shorten that window that I gave you to try to reassure the patient. You mean shorten the window in terms of time to communicate and make plans for this with the patients? Yeah, the process we had at Maryland was at least six months where before we transition people over. This is a very short window. Wow. and you six don't even months? know. That's and it's December, and everyone's going to get switched in January. That's right. That's what I call the avalanche of reauthorizations. Okay, Steve, what do you do in this scenario? Stable patient, uh, your infusion center is going to be switching. Do you put up a fight? No. Okay. Case two. 42-year-old woman with UC is receiving the biosimilar infliximab, She's lost response to therapy, and she's actively flaring with six to eight bloody stools per day with urgency. Let's say she's not infected, obviously. You obtain an infliximab level, which is undetectable, and she has high titer antibodies to infliximab. What would be your options in this scenario? Can you give her a different version of infliximab? So maybe start with the second question, then talk about the first. No. Ray can talk about it. Okay, so this is just a case scenario driving home the point we've made a couple times today. I I just think it's really important because prior to having biosimilars, we did not have this uh, potential risk to us and to our patients. Ray? um, I'm going to go back to case one because there's more to talk about. Oh, yeah? Should I go back uh, a slide? No, no. It's just the one thing I forgot to mention. I think patients are afraid of two things. They're afraid of flaring but they're also afraid of how much a change is going to cost them. And you also have to reassure him that the patient support programs from the biosimilar companies are highly similar to the ones of the innovator. So really their out-of-pocket should not change. It's not going to get better, but it's not going to get worse. And I think you also need to reassure them because that can be a fear as well. And in this case, I agree, you would not switch to infliximab. On the other hand, if they don't switch, their out-of-pocket is likely to go up. Important. Uh, I have, and I'm not aware that any patients have actually received a rebate or cost savings passed on to them. So despite the claim that this is saving money, right now the savings is somewhere in the payer's side. Okay. What would you do for this woman who has lost response to infliximab and has 
undetectable levels with anti-drug oh, um, an- antibodies? So this is, it's, I mean, you used to have a lot of options. You can go to a different anti-TNF with a concurrent immune suppressant if the patient's not already on an immune suppressant. When you're when you form antibodies, you're always an antibody former, so an immune suppressant is mandatory for the second anti-TNF. You can you have ustekinumab, you have vetalizumab, or I'm sorry, you have vetalizumab, you have tofacitinib, you have other options here as well, and that's where you get into the how fast do they need to be better, what mech, what mode of delivery do they want, how is safety the most important factor, and, and that's how I sort through what to use. But any of those would be a reasonable option here. Right. And also, of course, um, why did this patient lose response? Did she miss an infusion and her level dropped too low, and then when she got her level, sub, her drug subsequently, she developed antibodies because of what was essentially an episodic exposure to drug? Is she sick enough that she's just leaking drug and it's zeroing out and she's just getting exposed to more uh, antibody uh, therapy, but it's not getting to a level that will be effective. And so then you can consider your non-biological options when you're worried that protein-based therapies are leaking. Or most commonly, there was a hiatus because of a delay in reauthorization. Sure. So there was a delay, and that's also episodic therapy, essentially. Mm -hmm. And those are the challenges we face. And I completely agree with Ray. There are now um, studies in IBD, but there had previously been work done in rheumatoid arthritis that demonstrate that uh, not everyone's an antibody former, but if a patient is... Uh, showing you that they develop antibodies to one drug, you should be aware that they will do so or they have a higher risk of doing so with their second, especially within class. So in general, the principle has been that if you've shown that a patient responds to a specific mechanism and they're losing response because of increased clearance due to neutralizing antibodies, stick with the class that was working and cycle to another drug within the class, but protect them from having antibodies develop. Great. Case number three. 35-year-old ex-smoker with left-sided UC has not responded to 5-ASA, steroids, or azathioprine. He's received two loading doses of infliximab, but is still actively inflamed. You admit him to the hospital. C. diff is negative. The hospital only has biosimilar infliximab on formulary. What do you do? In other words, he's halfway through loading, and they only have one version of infliximab on formulary. Are you okay to do this? Or would you insist that they use the same drug pro- that you started he, with? He's probably not going to. He's probably not going to respond to the drug anyway. But I would <laughs> probably give this patient. It'd be interesting to know when the second dose was and try to get a level. Although that can take a little time to get it back. But I would probably just give this patient a double dose of the biosimilar. And if they're not better within a week, then you need to move on to something else. Whether it be colectomy, whether you feel comfortable trying to do something like cyclosporin or tofacitinib sure. off-label for a hospitalized patient, I think that's a, a, a longer discussion, but I would probably just give double dose of the biosimilar. So you're okay mid-cycle or mid-loading to have them go on to the other drug? I don't think you have a choice. I mean, I guess you could transfer them to a hospital that has the innovator product, but I don't right. think it makes a difference. Do you, and I don't, that, do you really think that's important? No, I don't think that's no. Important. Yeah, that's the point of this, is that it probably doesn't matter, and you're going to continue going on, but I think Ray's point that he may not respond to this at all anyway is certainly on absolutely, uh, absolutely important there. There are a few questions from the audience that I'm going to take us through now. Um, the first one is I'll actually ask Steve, why haven't all the biosimilars just been called interchangeable? What is that distinction, and why does it matter? Well, both the since this biosimilar 
process has been relatively new and there were a lot of questions about it from the community, from science, and whatever. Both the European and the U.S. have uh, given the, as Ray described, the approvability between inter, uh, um, extrapolation across diseases, but they are requiring multiple switches back and forth, which is what the community and the scientists have been asking for, in order to uh, give the interchangeability. Now, the problem, as David actually mentioned, is we're seeing interchangeability anyway, because it's by our insurance companies that are determining this. And Dave mentioned, if they're getting one biosimilar that's less than the innovator, and then the insurance company gets a better rate for a second biosimilar, they're going to move, and the patient's going to get switched de facto. So this interchangeability concerns, I think, are going to just go away. Ray, do you pre-medicate before biosimilars if you weren't pre-medicating for your originator or innovator? I, I think everything you do for the innovator, you do with the biosimilar. So if you're a practice that pre-medicates everyone, then you would do the same thing for the biosimilar you're doing for the innovator product. There are three, uh, this is me speaking, then the question. There are three biosimilars for adalimumab that have been approved by the FDA, but none that are available in the United States yet. Uh, but this question is, is Humira citrate-free a biosimilar to classic Humira? Steve? Not exactly, but probably so, because it was the FDA process of getting the citrate-free was somewhat different. It's an extension of the Humira patents and such. But if you looked at the Humira component, um, there are probably going to be little changes because it's, it's different. Uh, it's in a different solution, and that can impact on the another term you're going to love: the post-translational carboxylation. So I would predict that it's not a hundred percent identical to the uh, the usual Humira, but I'm not aware of any data that I haven't seen the data on it yet. So just to clarify, the citrate is in the. Um in the liquid that uh, suspends the antibody. It's not attached to the antibody. Right. So but, but technically the antibodies, it's just the, the, the proteins, substance. The proteins depend on temperature, acid, and a lot so of other, even if you shake it up, changes. the vial will change. But strictly speaking, probably it's not similar strictly enough. it wouldn't be a, it wasn't it's approved under the that, biosimilar laws. it's probably it's the comparability question. it's probably the comparability I issue i love the question too okay. i think it's great um very thoughtful audience you all get dessert uh in a in a scenario like case number three if a patient gets the biosimilar in the hospital and then gets better uh under your great care array and goes home do you stick with the biosimilar when they go out of the hospital or you put them back on their originator that you were giving them as an outpatient? So I think Steve mentions, I, I don't think it matters, but I think being a purist, I would try to keep them on the biosimilar so I'm not switching back again, but in essence, I don't think it matters. But I would try to keep them on the biosimilar. The fear is, and it's a fear, it's an unsubstantiated fear, the multiple switches, if there are minor, 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 minor differences that don't make a difference in one switch, may be exaggerated immunologically with multiple switches, but that's theory. That, that hasn't been shown with any agent thus far. And there have been some multiple switch studies um, with biosimilars that have not shown a problem with, with two switches. 
The two biggest risks of biosimilars is one, delay in communication and appropriate um, uh, sequencing so that the patient can stay on schedule when they're switching. And that will expose them to episodic therapy. And two is this mistake that might be made when someone has antibodies to infliximab and they get put on a biosimilar instead of a different drug. That, those are the two major errors that are real based on what we know. The data for switching right now shows repeatedly across multiple different lines of evidence that it appears safe. Um, is there an upper limit on drug level such that you don't get any additional benefit? Is there a ceiling? Can you give too much drug or can you get to a point where you say, I'm not going to get you any more? I don't know if I know the answer to that because I'm always limited by how much I could actually give the patient. 10 milligrams per kilogram every four weeks is where I stop. But I remember Lloyd Mayer may, used to give 20 milligrams to some patients. Well, I don't think there's an issue with high levels because, look, at we, we've tested infliximab up to 20 milligrams per kilogram. There were no dose-related in a short-term study, no dose-related side effects. When you think about it, we're giving high doses of induction therapy with all of the biologics. They're getting a, a 026 with infliximab and vetalizumab, higher induction doses with adalumumab. We're not seeing side effects right after the, that induction. Um, so I don't believe there are dose-related side effects, um, except perhaps long-term with um, the soreatiform lesions may be related to drug levels. Um, two more I questions. I mean, I, th I, th I think, Kevin, I think for infliximab and adalimumab, what I do in practice is typically my shoulder for healing is 8 for infliximab and around 12 for adalimumab. There's some data for that. Um, if you're dealing with perianal disease, there's some emerging data that maybe the level should be even higher, although anecdotally, when I've pushed people into the teens, I have not experienced complete closure of the fistulas. But So for luminal disease, I think infliximab 8, adalimumab 12. I think if you're going above that, I don't think you get much benefit. Okay. Two more brief questions. One, um, one of the audience members uh, has made the observation, and I would agree with this, that patients who were switched from Lialda to the generic of that misalamine have had some uh, relapse symptoms. I have to, happen to have seen this in a few patients. So the question that, that this uh, colleague of ours has is, is it possible this could happen with the biosimilars? So I think one of, the, one of our provider's fears is that switching, you're going to get this nocebo effect where, oh my gosh, I'm on a different drug and I'm not on infliximab and now I'm flaring and what you're detecting is some IBS overlap that you're now going to be forced to investigate which is going to have increased costs associated with it. And I don't know how much of the switch from innovator product with the five ASAs to a generic or to another product is that. Sometimes it's a dose reduction where a patient's on 4.8 and goes to 1.6 but is it, is it IBS? Is it real? I'm not really sure. Don't confuse generics with biosimilars. The process of approval is very different. You can make an identical acetylsalicylic acid, which would be a generic to Bayer aspirin. They are identical. Every atom is the same in those. In the biosimilars, as Ray discussed, they are not identical. They are extremely similar. 
So don't confuse them, although practically it may not, not make a difference. I'll just take the last one. Um, there was a questionnaire that I think is completely valid, which said that the panel, all three of us, have been saying that we're comfortable with switching, um, but we implied that maybe even interchanging because of the patient going in and out of the hospital setting. Uh, and uh, is the data strong enough for that? I would, I would say that there are not sufficient data for interchangeability. Interchangeability is a designation from the FDA, but what it means is pharmacy doesn't have to call you. Nobody has to notify anybody. The patient can be on any drug. We don't think that that's where this should be. We do think that the data in directional switching and in specific circumstances supports that this is safe otherwise.